So I would like to talk about the issue of justification, being born again, being saved. So just to give a definition of justification, justification is a term, is, is, a, is a legal term. It would be a term that would be used to describe somebody who has been acquitted of a crime. They're justified or they've been proven innocent. Um, so when we say we're justified as a Christian, it means that in the courtroom of heaven, we stand before God as innocent. And so that is the most important question that anybody can answer, and they need to answer it correctly. So in your background, as growing up in the Catholic Church, what was your relationship to the idea of how is somebody justified? Um, I think it was, so there were the sacraments, right? So mm. you started out as an infant, and you know you became a member of the Catholic Church, and so your original sin was washed away, and then there were all these things that you did in addition. So at a certain age, you received First Communion. At a certain age, you went through Confirmation. Um, and then there were things you were supposed to continue to do. So you have to go to Mass, and you're supposed to receive the Eucharist, and you're supposed to go to Confession. So it was a lot of, um, although you, you knew Jesus was your Savior, you knew He had died on a cross for your sins, like that was, that was not skipped over. There was just these procedures that you also had to go through. And so, yeah, I always believed in Jesus, but I always, I guess, also thought that, but I've also got to do all these other things because those are required too. Um, did it really know they weren't biblical in nature, that they were you know, doctrinal to the Catholic Church? I found that out later, but it was just, these were the, kind of like the check boxes, maybe. Mm -hmm. like these were things that you needed to do to make sure right. that you were good. That right. was kind of what salvation encompassed. So it was like, you know, salvation plus. Salvation wasn't, wasn't necessarily a starting point, though I guess infant baptism would be the starting, starting point, point right? right? But it was a continuation of your entire life. Yeah, like you know, all that, these things that you do. Yeah. In, in the starting point, yeah, yeah for Catholics it was baptism, but you, you didn't, of course, know any better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but as, as you grew up through the Catholic faith, there were uh, things, again, you need to do, but it was almost as if it was making sure you stayed you know, within the faith and, and, and you stay between these lines. And it, and if you maybe if you did a little extra, uh, said some extra prayers, it was better for you and, and you know, yeah. what have you. Uh, and, and, and not that anyone was really watching and keeping a, a marker uh, yeah. progress that you went sure. through. But you you knew that, oh, if I maybe if I say a couple extra Hail Marys or extra uh, rosaries or what have you. If I do it on a daily basis, I'm somehow better off. Sure. Not necessarily even just salvation. I guess maybe salvation, but just a, a better person. And that all adds to it. So we are going to look at week three in our Reformation series. And we're going to look at the subject that Connie and Kurt were talking about. What they were actually under the surface talking about. Which is the difference between... Salvation by works or salvation by grace? Salvation by maintaining our salvation by our works or salvation by grace? By grace alone. And so I want to encourage you that if you have not listened to the first two parts of this series, it's so very important for you to go back and listen to them so you have a context of where we're at. So we are looking at the Protestant, Ref Protestant Reformation. And, and in week one, I talked about the, the necessity of the Reformation. Where had the church... Since the resurrection of Christ, since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, where had the church got off track, got off center from the biblical gospel? Where had they erred as concerning how someone is justified? And where had they erred in, in many other areas? Uh, and, and so we, we've been looking at, we looked at in the first week, what, what were the reasons why the church needed to be re reformed? Why did it need to adjust and change? And then last week we looked at the foundation of all of the reformation that ever needs to take place in our life or in any church is the word of God. That the final authority is not the papacy. The final authority is, is not the, the church. The final authority is not the priest or the pastor or, or, or a spiritual leader. The final authority in all matters of salvation and in all matters of Christian living is the word of God. 
It is the final authority. It is what we base our life on as believers in Jesus Christ. That the word of a church, the word of the Pope, the word of, the, of a priest, the word of a pastor, my word, and what I say, what I declare is never equal with Scripture. Now when I open the Bible and I, and I read the Bible, that's the only time that I can rightfully say, thus saith the Lord. And this is what we talked about last week. It's the foundation. That truly was the foundation of the Reformation. The Reformers looked at the church. They looked at the doctrines. They looked at the the superstitions and the traditions put on par with Scripture. And they said, wait a minute. Scripture doesn't say this about Mary. Scripture doesn't say this about the papacy. Scripture doesn't say this about indulgences. It doesn't say this about purgatory. We could go on and on. And we covered that in the first two weeks. And so they began to to push back and say, no, this is what Scripture says. And over the, course, over the course of over 100 years, reformers, men and women, stood up and said, no, we are standing on what God's Word says. And so this is what the foundation of the Reformation is. And so we are looking today at one of the solas of the Reformation, which is grace alone. Next week, we're going to look at faith alone. The week after that, we're going to look at Christ alone. And the, the final week of the series, we're going to look at to the glory of God alone. So this morning we are talking about grace alone for our salvation. I've titled the message, The Grace in Which We Stand. The Grace in Which We Stand. So would you pray with me before we jump in? Lord, we thank you this morning for the the privilege of gathering together and to to hear your word taught. And and I pray, Lord, that wherever we, we come from, whatever walk of life we come from, whether we are are still currently in the Catholic Church, we're trying to figure things out whether we have left the Catholic Church trying to figure things out, wherever we are, whatever our situation is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at your word and to let your word be the final test for what we believe and how we live our Christian life. God, I pray that you would help us today. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you think of the word grace, what do you think of? When you think of the word grace, what is it that you think of? You know, if you asked a believer, you would typically get a similar answer when, you think of the, when we think of the word grace. We think of, of the term unmerited favor. We think of God being gracious towards us, something that we don't deserve. I think most of you, if I asked you as a Christian what you would think of when you think of the word grace, that's what you would think. You would connect the word grace... To Christ, you would connect the word grace to something that you were given that you did not deserve, that you could not earn. But there was a, there was a pastor that went on a TV show. You ever heard of the, the show Morning Joe? I think it's on MSNBC maybe. This was about eight years ago. There was a, uh, he used to be a famous pastor uh, and he wrote a book about grace. And he went on the show to kind of promote his book on the grace of God, the grace of Christ. And so the, the guy who was the interviewer, he, he asked the pastor, he said, Pastor, can you define what grace is? Give me a definition of grace. And the pastor spent eight minutes defining grace, and he never mentioned Jesus. Can you imagine defining grace apart from Christ? What is grace if there is no Christ? What is grace if there is no God? What is grace if you just define it apart from God and the reality of Christ? And so this is a type of grace that the world has no problem with. We all love grace, don't we? We all, we all want grace. You know, there's really two definitions of grace. There's, there's common grace that God gives us, and then there's special grace that God gives us. What are the common graces in this life? Well, it, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, we all share the common grace of the sun. Don't you love to get out on a beautiful sunny day and play golf? If it's not too hot, I know I do. Maybe it's fishing. You like to fish on a sunny day. We all share the common grace of the sun, of the moon, of the stars, of beautiful weather, of, 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 of the creation that God has given us. We, we can all share the common grace from God of the life that he's given us. We can be married. We can have kids. These are co- this is common grace that all of humanity gets to experience because God lets us experience that. It's only a grace. Do you realize that? It's only a grace that you're breathing air right now. 
It's only by the grace of God that we get to live on this planet. And what a wonderful grace that that is. I know you look around the world today and you think, Pastor Ben, it's not that much of a grace. Look, this world's gone mad. No matter how mad the world is, no matter how crazy it gets, it is still a grace that I get to wake up today. I'm going to wake up tomorrow by God's grace. And I'm going to have my wife and my kids by God's grace. That's called common grace. But then God broke through into creation and he sent special grace through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Special grace. It's grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that special grace today. We're gonna talk about the special grace, the grace of God that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna talk a little bit before we get to a section of text Talk a little bit about Martin Luther. I want to talk some more, go back in history and talk a little bit more about Martin Luther. I mentioned some of this to you previously, but do you remember the story I told you in the first week, in the first series about Martin Luther, how he, he, he decided to become a, a monk? Do you remember the story? There was a rainstorm, and he got caught in a rainstorm and a lightning storm. There was lightning going on all around him. And what did Martin Luther famously say? He cried out to St. Anne, save me, St. Anne. And he said, St. Anne, if you will save me and you will protect me and I make it out alive during this lightning storm, I will become a monk. And he kept his word. His dad wanted, wanted him to have a career. His dad wanted him to go into law school to become a lawyer. And, you know, lawyers probably make more money than monks. So his dad probably felt like this is a good decision. And then when Martin Luther came home and said, um, I'm going to be a monk. His dad was not happy. His dad, and history tells us, it is said that, that for over a year or two that uh, Martin Luther's dad did not even speak to him. So that was in 1505. Luther had that experience and he cried, cried out to St. Anne and so he became a monk. But in 1507, he is actually walking out. He is ordained. He's a monk and he's a priest and he is at the monastery. And now Luther, Luther, he fully immersed himself into his life as a monk. He was not like any of the other monks. He believed in what he was taught from the church of Rome. He believed in a high view, of a high view of God. I, I want you to catch this. This is so important. He had a high view of God and his righteousness and his holiness, which we all need. If you do not have a high view of God and his righteousness and his holiness, you do not see God correctly. And Luther had that view of God. If you think God is just some best bud for you to have and, and I'm getting Jesus and God to tag alongside me in my life and, and, and he's going to come along and help me out in my life, you have the wrong view of God. God is high and God is holy. Isaiah the prophet, what does it say in Isaiah 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels were crying out, holy, holy, holy. Luther had that view of God. He had the view of God that God was righteous and that man was sinful and that, and that man had to appease God because God was holy and righteous and man was sinful. And Luther took that serious. And so Luther, Luther would spend hours a day, hours a day, going to the priest at the monastery and confessing his sins. He believed in what he was taught about confession. And, and, and he believed so greatly that God was righteous and he was unholy that, that he would even physically harm himself to try to atone for his sins. It, it is said of Luther that he would even sleep outside in the cold without blankets or covering so that he could, he could atone for his sins. This is Martin Luther. Luther did not struggle to have a correct view of the righteousness of God, but he had no view of the grace of God. He had no view of the grace of God from a biblical standpoint. He had no view of the grace of God. The grace of God was locked up, listen, in the sacraments. Listen, this is so important. He had a high view of God in his righteousness and his holiness. But the grace of God, this is so important to follow, was locked up in the sacraments. So how was he going to get grace? He saw he was sinful, but how was he going to get grace? By working for it. By doing the sacraments. And one of them was confession. And he would confess. And he would confess. And he would confess. And he spent hours. And the priest he would confess to would say, Luther, would, would, would you stop it? 
Next time would you, when you come back, would you confess something that is actually worth confessing? You're confessing all these ideas and these, 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 these thoughts that are underneath your thoughts. And, and come back and confess something that's worthy of, con, of confession. But Luther continually had a guilty conscience. For Luther, the righteousness of God was against him. And because of that, he continually lived from a place of deficit. No view of the grace of God. He continually lived without assurance of salvation from a deficit. And he had to continue to maintain it. And he believed in what was taught. The error of the Roman Catholic Church taught this idea of the state of grace. Here's the idea behind the state of grace. At baptism and then culminating in confirmation, the believer is held in the state of grace. That is until you sin. And then sin removes you from the state of grace. And then how do you get back into the state of grace? The Roman Catholic Church still teaches this today. They taught it then. It's still taught today. The way you get back into the state of grace is via the sacraments of confession and penance. The slate could then be wiped clean and you can be brought back to zero no longer in debt. And how, how, do, you, how do you get back into that state of grace? Through confession and through penance. You have to draw from something. You have to draw from something. This is what Luther was taught. You have to draw from something. And this is the idea. You draw from what is called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit. This is taught by Rome. The treasury of merit could be drawn from to bring a person back to right standing before God. So what is a Roman Catholic doctrine of the treasury of merits? This is what it is. The treasury of merit is a superabundant store of righteousness and good works belonging to Christ, the Virgin Mary, and to the saints. The treasury of merit is filled with the merit of Christ and Mary who were sinless and the saints who had more than enough merit to enter heaven themselves. They had earned more spiritual rewards than they needed. This merit is now available to others to supplement their own meritorious works. Luther believed this wholeheartedly. How do we know he believed it wholeheartedly? Because he worked hard to merit salvation. He worked hard at the sacraments. He worked hard at being right. He worked hard at confession. He worked hard at this. And even even his confessor that he would go confess to, he would get so frustrated, he finally told Luther, he said, he said, don't you know that God has commanded you to hope? His confessor finally told him, don't you know that God has commanded you to hope? And then he, he cried out to Luther, don't you know that God loves you? Luther believed wholeheartedly in the system of merit that the church had erred in and had developed this treasury of merit that Christ, it's Christ's merits, it's Mary's merit, it's the saint's merit, and it's in this treasury of merit. And, and by confession, by the sacraments, by penance, you can draw from this and you could supplement your own good works. And you, can be, and you can be maintained into the state of grace. The medieval church's penal system led people to believe that they could earn their way to heaven and that they therefore must try as hard as possible to do so. I've got a question for you. If that is actually true, let, let's read that statement again. The medieval church's penal system led people to believe that they could earn their way to heaven and that they therefore must try as hard as possible to do so. Isn't that not reasonable if that was true? If, if I told you that for you to get to heaven, that you had to work as hard as possible to do so, is that not reasonable if that was true? Absolutely. If that's the way to get to heaven, then, sign, then, then, right, then I'm going to do it. Then I'm going to work as hard as possible. But unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. And so the church had developed a doctrine that was not Biblical, a system, so to speak. Not just one doctrine, but many doctrines, but a system that said that you had to work hard to earn salvation and then to maintain your state of grace to enter heaven. Where the church had erred is in believing in the ability of man to merit for himself the righteousness of God. This is the fatal flaw of every system of belief that teaches that righteousness can be attained through the moral strength of man. What the Reformation of the 16th century recovered was the biblical doctrine of grace alone for salvation and sanctification. And I'm going to cover today the premier text 
for salvation by grace alone. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at this section. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to break down this section into three areas that demonstrate grace alone for salvation. So would you, would you, would you read along? Would you listen as we read? This is so beautiful. Such a beautiful section. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We will look at three realities of this doctrine of grace alone for salvation. Three realities that show us through this text that the system that the, that the medieval church had developed and the system that Rome still teaches today is not biblical. That salvation is, is not the state of grace that you get into and that you can lose it by what you do or by what you don't do. Or that you can get it back by what you don't do or what you do do. Do do. Probably not a word you say. What's what's the first section of this text? Salvation by grace is necessary because of the nature of man. Salvation by grace alone is necessary because of the nature of man. If salvation comes because of our works, it is ignoring the nature of man. What is the nature of man? You were dead, Ephesians 2 says. You were dead. You were following the course of the world. You were following Satan, who's the prince and the power of the air. You were sons of disobedience. You lived in the passions of your flesh. You carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And you were by nature a child of wrath. Welcome to church today. You were by nature a child of wrath. You're not by nature a good person. All of us by nature were children of wrath. What does that mean to be a child of wrath? It means that by, by nature we are born sinful and deserving of the wrath of God. Children of wrath. We are born in sin. What is man's nature apart from Christ? We're dead. We're disobedient. We follow the world, the flesh, and Satan. And we're under the wrath of God. That's what Ephesians 2 says there. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are disobedient. We follow the world, the flesh, and Satan. And we are under the wrath of God. When we're born. I'll never forget all of my children when they were born. I'll never forget the precious babies. You remember when your child was born? You remember that? Think about it. Happy Father's Day, right? I remember looking at that baby and thinking... How could this child ever do anything that's wrong? So innocent. So precious. How long did that last, do you think? Three months? Six months? Probably nine months tops? Nine months tops? (laughs) Right? We don't have to be taught to sin. Why? Because inside of all of us as human beings, as precious as you are, every child is born, yes, in the image of God. They're inherently uh, valuable because they're made in the image of God, but they are also inherently born with a sinful nature, with a propensity to rebel and to disobey. And so our kids, as precious as they are, and as precious as you are when you were born, no doubt, if I'd have seen you when you were born, I'd have thought how precious that child is. But we're not taught to sin. We sin because it's natural to us. And I think there's something ingrained in all of children to rebel against mom and dad. Parents, have you experienced that? You know what's interesting is that fundamentally mankind believes we can fix that problem. We can fix our sin problem. Fundamentally man believes we can fix our sin problem. 
You remember back in Genesis? Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, when, when, when Eve took the fruit and brought it to Adam and said, Hey, Adam, check this out. I've got something for you. It, it looks really good. What, what, what happened when they sinned? So this is Genesis 3. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the, fl- the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Nakedness before the fall had no connection to shame or sin. But after the fall, they were ashamed of their nakedness because now sin had entered humanity. So what did Adam and Eve do, the first human beings do, to try to atone for their sins? They tried to cover the effects of their sin. The effects of their sin was that now they saw that they were naked, now they were ashamed, so they took fig leaves and they covered for their sin. This is what humanity does. We try to atone for our own sins. Actually, there's three things that humanity does. There's three ways in which mankind tries to deal with their sin and their guilt. Three, prim- three primary ways. First one, we work hard at atoning for our sin. Adam and Eve, we're going to go get those fig leaves and we're going to sew together. We're going to cover our sin. I'm going to atone. I'm going to atone. I'm Martin Luther. I'm going to atone. I'm going to, I'm going to confess for hours and hours and hours. I'm going to sleep outside in the cold. I'm going to atone for my sin. Atone, atone, atone. Work hard. Second way mankind deals with their sin is that they work hard at ignoring their sin and its consequences. Look, look, look around. Look at your life. How, when, 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 when in your life, when in our life, have, have we looked at our sin? And I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to ignore that. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the consequences. And man just tries to stuff those things. Another way in which mankind has tried to deal with sin is that they work hard at eliminating categories for sin. So now, I'm not going to work hard at atoning for my sin. I'm not going to work hard at covering my sin. I'm just going to eliminate sin altogether. What is sin? I'm going to eliminate the categories of sin. There is no adultery. There's no fornication. There's no sin. I can live however I want to live. And this is how mankind deals with sin. We will either work hard at atoning. We'll work for atoning, ignoring, or eliminating sin. But the problem of sin still remains. The problem remains because of why? The nature of man. No matter how hard you work at removing sin, ignoring sin, atoning for your sin, the problem of sin still remains. Why? Because inherently in you, it is not possible for you to pull up your self-righteous bootstraps and fix your sin problem. This is why salvation by grace is necessary because it's impossible for a sinful human being to atone for their own sin. Do you get that here today? This is why salvation by grace, this is why the system of Rome does not work, did not work, will not work, cannot work. It's not just the system of Rome. It's any false religious system that tells you that in and of yourself, you have the ability inherently to fix your sin problem. And you will either do one of those three things. You're going to work hard at fixing, get rid of the guilt. You're going to ignore the consequences or you're just going to try to eliminate it altogether. So you don't have to deal with guilt or shame. Humanity cannot fix the sin problem no matter how hard we work. What does the text say? Here's the reason why. Because we're dead. Spiritually dead people cannot do anything about their sin problem. Spiritually dead people cannot do anything. The problem of their guilt and the problem of the judgment of God, they're incapable of fixing that on their own. So if salvation is going to come, it is going to be because of the grace of God alone. Because of the grace of God alone. Not because we did anything on our own to pay our debt. You know, this reality is uncomfortable for us. You, you, do, you, do you feel the tension as I'm talking about that? This reality is uncomfortable for us because we like to think that we're basically good. And we like to think that if we work hard enough, we can dig our way out of anything. Isn't that the American mindset? I think it's just a human mindset. We like to think, hey, it doesn't matter how hard it is, how far down the road I am, I can work my way out of it. That's a part of the ingrained sinful nature. We think we can get out of our own problem. Some of, us, some of us in here, we think that even greater than others. We have more confidence in our flesh. Look how God's word destroys the common pride-filled idea that we're basically good and capable of pursuing good on our own. Look at Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all 
things and desperately sick. You, you know that the idea in our world today, just trust your heart. Just go with your feelings. That's probably the worst idea, advice that anybody could ever give you. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your feelings. For sure, if your heart is not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you should never trust your heart and your feelings. If your heart and your feelings are not submitted to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, don't ever trust your heart and your feelings. Why? Because the heart of man is deceitful above what? All things. Who can understand it? Romans 3 says this. What then? Are are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. What does that mean? All have turned aside. Together they have been worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Can we let that sit for a second? Think about that. For a second. Think about what scripture just said right there. No one seeks after God. You think, well, look at the world. Tons of people are seeking after God. No one does good. No, not one. Look at all the good that's done. Look at all the the charities that are given to. Look at all the good that humanity does. What does scripture say right there in Romans 3? No one seeks after God And no one does good. No, not one. What does that mean? It means that even the good in the heart of a person who is not a believer is not good. It means that there's no good that we can do that is is an ultimate good that will fix our sin problem and our relationship with God. There's no amount of good that we can do. There's no amount of seeking of God. If we don't seek God in truth through the person and work of Christ, then that seeking of God accounts for nothing. Do you guys follow that? No one does good. There's no amount of good that you do that can atone for your sins. This is what Romans 3 is saying. It's culminating Romans chapter 1 and 2. Paul is making the argument that all are guilty. Those who... Those who are unrighteous and want nothing to do with God in Romans 1, they're boasting in their sin. The Jews, they're guilty. Those who are, are seeking God, they're guilty too, he says in Romans 2. And it culminates in Romans 3. All are guilty before God. We don't save ourselves and we can't save ourselves. No matter how smart or good or giving or loving or compassionate or kind or gentle or patient, or forgiving, no matter how much we serve our community, how much we care for the orphan, how much we go to confession, how many prayers we pray, how much we seek to make this world a better place, no matter how much we seek to eradicate the ills of our society, none of these things work towards our salvation. None of these things atone for our sin problem. Why is that? What does the Bible say? Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a a polluted garment. You guys get that? All the good. Think about all the good that you've, you've ever done. If you're looking at that good as a means to be right before God, what does scripture say about your righteous deeds? They're all like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away for you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This is why any gospel, quote, gospel message that adds self-effort, good works, or ceremonial rites, or anything else is not the biblical gospel of grace. Period. In the discussion. Works Righteousness, beliefs, or systems overestimate the ability of man and they underestimate the depravity of man. Did you catch that? Works, righteousness, beliefs, or systems overestimate the ability of man and they underestimate the depravity of man. This is why people, people, this is why the world doesn't want to hear the gospel because what does the gospel tell you? You're guilty. This is why the world doesn't jump 
for joy when you go and tell them they're under the judgment of God because they're like, why? I, why am I under the judgment of God? I'm still married to my spouse. I'm, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm not bad. What are they counting on for their definition of not being bad? They're good works. But what does scripture say? It destroys all of that. Nobody is made righteous or is righteous based upon anything that they do. Why? Because by nature, they are children of wrath and cannot save themselves. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to be thrown away. Salvation, this is so important, salvation by grace is necessary because of the nature of man. So I have another question for you. If we are unable to merit salvation by being good, then where's the hope? Don't you love scripture? Second thought here today, salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. I'm about to preach myself happy today. I don't know if you're going to be happy, but I'm going to preach myself happy today. Salvation by grace is necessary because of the nature of man. We are all inherently sinful and guilty and cannot save ourselves by our good works. But salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. Look at what the text says. But God. Scripture just slayed us in the first two, three verses of of Ephesians 2. It just destroyed us. It destroyed our self-righteousness. It destroyed this inherent idea we have that, that we can save ourselves and puts us in our place. And then when we're out there with our arms stretched out wide, we're like, God, okay, I get it. I can't do it. What did Luther need to hear? He needed to hear, but... God, Luther, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Martin Luther understood the holiness and the righteousness of God, but he had no category for the grace of God. He didn't understand but God. He only understood, but Luther, here's your responsibility. But Luther, but Luther, here's what you have to do. Here's what you have to maintain. When we don't understand the grace of God, it is because we don't understand the love of God. God is gracious because he is love. Because God is love, he's gracious. I want to show you. Old Testament, New Testament, the grace of God. God's grace demonstrated in the Old Testament. You remember Adam and Eve? We looked at earlier in Genesis 3. You want to see the grace of God? The moment God allowed Adam and Eve to live after they had sinned, he demonstrated his grace and mercy. The moment that God didn't strike them dead was a moment of mercy. He provided a way. What, 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 what happened whenever Adam and Eve covered their sin with fig leaves? Jesus comes walking in the garden comes talking and says, Adam, where are you? What are you doing, Adam? He tries to, he calls account, he calls Adam to account. He didn't say Eve, he called Adam, 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 you're the responsible one. I left you there, I left you in charge, I left you as a responsible party to lead your family. Adam, where are you? And all they could say was, hey, we've done our best, we've covered ourselves, but what, what, did, what did God do? He killed an animal. He took the skins of an animal and he covered Adam and Eve. He kicked them out of the garden, but he didn't end their life. That's grace. You remember the story of Jonah preaching to the wicked Ninevites? If you studied, if you studied the Ninevites, you remember the, the, we went through the book of Jonah a few months back during COVID. And the Ninevites, I think it was during COVID, it may have been be, be, before COVID, but uh, at t- times all off, right? Isn't it all off to you? I don't even know. I mean, what's today? I don't know, but um, it's a Sunday. I'm going to Florida here after service if I can get my car to work. Uh, we're going on vacation. It wouldn't start this morning. My father, thank God for my father. I got my family here to church. 
But you remember, we're going through Jonah and the Ninevites. The Ninevites were notoriously wicked. And Jonah didn't just want to go to speak the, 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 a repentance to the, to the Ninevites. It wasn't just because he didn't like them. He was scared for his life. He didn't want to go because he didn't know what would happen to him. But he also didn't really like the Ninevites. So we know the story. Jonah comes and preaches. Repent or judgment's coming. And then the Ninevites, the king says, okay, we repent in sackcloth and ashes. We're going to repent from the king to the cattle. I don't know what what, what a cow looks like when he repents or she, but even the cows were repenting. Talk about a revival when when your beef is repenting. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, I've preached, I preach messages and, and I don't know who repents, but in that message what a powerful message but you know what it wasn't Jonah it was the word of the Lord and so they all repent and Jonah hated it he hated it he stood up and he walked and he went to the top of a hill to sit and to see what was going to happen is God really going to be merciful to them is it really going to happen and you know the story how it unfolds God teaches him a lesson to value life more than he would value even a plant But listen to this quote. This is from Carl R. Truman in his book on grace. It says, as fallen human beings, there is a part of us that hates the success of others. To see the grace of God so gloriously displayed in the lives of the Ninevites was more than Jonah could bear. Jonah's reaction is only so ugly because God's grace is so beautiful. Isn't that good? Jonah's reaction is only so ugly because God's grace is so beautiful. God gave grace to the Ninevites. Look at Exodus 34. The Lord describes himself. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 24. This is the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is our God. Salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. God is gracious. Now, in the New Testament, here's what I'll say about grace demonstrated in the New Testament. The supreme manifestation of God's grace in history is Jesus Christ. The supreme manifestation of God's grace in history is Jesus Christ. Philip, one of the disciples, asked Jesus in John 14, he said this, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What was Jesus trying to communicate to Philip and the other disciples. He was trying to tell them, if you want to know what God is like, look at at me. Salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. Who was Jesus? Who did Jesus demonstrate God to be? Jesus was God in the flesh, but he was demonstrating the heart of the Father. Jesus lived his life to demonstrate the character and nature of God. When he saw crowds, what happened to Christ? He was moved with compassion. I love that. What did he say in multiple occasions in the Gospels? It would say he saw the crowds. He'd lift up his eyes. He'd see the crowds. And he was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless and lost. When he saw the sick, he was moved to act. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and grace and mercy and love. When he saw those that others would not associate with, he was moved in their direction. How often are we moved in the direction of others that we don't want to associate with? How often do we go the opposite direction? What did Christ do? He went in the direction of those that others would go the opposite direction of. Matthew 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this... They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen? This is the heart of our Father. Salvation is possible. Salvation by grace is possible because this is who our God is. Some of you have an image of God the Father uh, as Christ protecting you from God the Father. I want you to listen to this. Some of you have this idea that Jesus is protecting you from God the Father. Jesus is demonstrating to you who God the Father is. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of justice. But he's a God of mercy and grace. And his mercy and his grace and his justice all come together in perfect unity. This is who our God is. Salvation is possible because of the nature of God, a God of love, compassion, and grace. You know, one of the greatest sections in the, the Gospel of John, but I would say I, I love this section in all the Gospels of the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You guys know that account? Jesus comes at noonday to the well, and no one went at noonday to draw water. You went at noonday like Jesus to, if you were thirsty, but the ladies would come at the early morning when it wasn't hot to draw water for the day for their family. And when he gets there, he knew the lady was going to be there, the Samaritan woman was going to be there. He had an appointment with her. He showed up and he says, give me something to drink. And the woman was in shock. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, a man, a Jew, are asking water from me, a woman who is a Samaritan? You don't have any dealings with us. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. The Jews looked down on the, on the Samaritans as a, as a mixed breed. They were a partial Jew and they intermarried with pagan nations. And so they were a mixed breed. There was prejudice and racism between those groups of people. And Jesus came to a lady that none of his disciples would have even gone and gotten water from her. They were going out to get lunch. But Jesus had an appointment with her because this is what he did. He went towards those who were the outcasts. He went towards those who were the unlovable. And what in this course of this conversation, Jesus already knew that she was committing adultery. She was married and then was divorced and was divorced again and again and again five times. And she's living with a, a, a man, this her sixth man she's living with, not her husband this time. She was an outcast. She was an adulterer. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She was the lowest of the low in that society. And Jesus says, I've come to show you where to find living water. And I love what the culmination of the conversation, John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What was Jesus telling this woman? I am where truth is found. I love you. I came for you. And what happened when, the, when, the, when the, the disciples came back? They marveled, it says in John 4, that he was talking with the woman. They marveled. But this is our God. Salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. And Jesus demonstrated the heart of the Father for a Samaritan adulterous woman. He came to her. And says, I'm offering you living water. Are are you here today? And you are at the end of your well. You've been drawing water from a well that is empty. And you feel like you are outcast and you've done it all. And God would never love you or accept you or receive you. The life of Jesus demonstrates to you here today that no matter where you come from or, or what walk of life you are in or what sin you have committed, that if you will come with a surrendered heart, That Christ will receive you and forgive you and will make you brand new by his grace. Salvation by grace is necessary because of the nature of man. Salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of our God who loves and pursues sinners. And if you're here today and you have this feeling of self-righteous pride, And you have the yeah buts and the, well, they need to do this or that. You need to be reminded today that just because your sin doesn't look like someone else's doesn't mean that you are less deserving of judgment. May we never be self-righteously proud as Christians. May we never look down on people that our Lord didn't look down on but actually went to Because he's the answer. 
Salvation, thirdly here today, salvation by grace is received only on the merits of Christ. Salvation by grace is necessary because of our nature. It's possible because of God's nature and it is received only on the merits of Christ. Look back at the text. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. That in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation by grace is received only because of the work of Christ, only on his merits. Not a treasury of merit from Mary or the saints or any spiritual person that puts them in a, a stockpile and then by my good works I draw on that merit. No! It's only on the merits of Christ on the cross when he died for our sins and he shed his blood. The text says it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is not your own doing. So so I have a question for you. Another question. What does not your own doing mean? You want a Hebrew or or a a, a Greek study? Did you want a Greek study of what not, not your own doing means? I'll give it to you. It means you didn't do anything and Christ did everything. That's, that's the Greek study. <laughs> it means not your own doing. It means you didn't do anything and Christ did everything. Isn't that good? The doctrine of grace is a pride killer for those who place hope in their religious effort. This goes against our grain. I, I can feel the yabuts. And the what about this going on in your brain? Aren't you glad for a gospel that's not a bunch of yeah buts? And what about this? It's just simply not my own doing. It's only a grace. It's only a grace. It's by grace. I didn't do anything. It's not your own doing. If I could do it, what would I do? And then I'd keep doing because I did it. If I got myself saved by my Good work, so then I'm going to keep doing good works to keep myself saved. That was the Roman system. Scripture says no. It's not your own doing. Christ did everything. Notice what Jesus said, and he hung on the cross just before he died. John 19. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished and he bowed and gave up his spirit what what was finished what did christ finish redemption was complete the price was paid he had done the final work that was necessary to redeem a lost world it is finished nothing more to be done nothing extra to be done just in case no need to hedge our bets when you come to christ no need to hedge your bets well i'm going to submit to christ but i'm going to hedge my bets and kind of work a system here to make sure just in case christ's work wasn't enough and it wasn't really finished You think if Christ does something, if God in the flesh does something, that he's going to get it done right the first time? How many of you husbands, you you do things? Like, I'm going to change our car battery, which I think is what is wrong with the car. Estelle doesn't have a lot of confidence in me to change a car battery. She asked me pre-service, you think you can do it? I said, sweetheart, I've changed several batteries. But I pray she has more confidence in Christ than she does in me. (laughs) That's all I got to say. But think about that. That's the same thing that we do when we, when we revert back to this idea that we can, we, you know, we just got to make, I got to hedge my bets. Got to make sure that what he did is enough. It's a false gospel. It's, a, it's an affront to the work of Christ. You ever sent your son out to cut grass or your daughter out to cut grass? Yeah? When they're like 12 years old. I mean, the first time I sent Joel out to cut grass, 11, 12 years old, I'm like watching. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't do country cuts. <laughs> we live in the neighborhood. We don't want a country cut. We want it to look nice, right? I remember Matt Carnes said something about Joel's first grass cutting experience. He said, well, you got a country cut or something like that. <laughs> but what was that? I was going behind. I'm looking. I'm watching just in case. That's what we do. When we revert back to a religious system that's based upon works righteousness, 
We're going back behind. We're trying to go back behind God. Say, God, I, I know you're God. And I know that what you do is complete and full and nothing to be added to. But just in case. Salvation by grace is received only on the merits of Christ. Our Lord doesn't need us to finish something he already accomplished. You ever seen those bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot? If you have that, take it off your car, please. <laughs> you, you ain't got nothing going on that J- Jesus needs you to help him out with, right? Take the bumper sticker off. Get a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my pilot. He did it all. I'm going where he leads. Amen? When we hear this message of the grace of God and salvation, our inner Pharisee wants to come up. And that's what's happening. We want it, that, that comes up and we say, yeah, but you got to do this and you got to do that. Show me, show me somewhere where that's true. We're going to look at, look, next week we're going to look at faith. It's coming. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But it's only by grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel of yeah, but, or what about this or that? It's grace with no strings attached. That is the definition of grace, unmerited favor. I've I've heard some people say, it's hard to serve God. Maybe you felt that way, it's hard to serve God. It's hard to serve God. I think it can only be hard to serve God for two reasons. We don't really understand the holiness of God, and we don't really understand how offensive our sin is to God. That's when it's hard to serve God. Because when you understand the holiness of God and when you understand how offensive your sin is to a holy God and you have that in context with the grace of God and you realize that a holy God who is offended by my sin would pursue me and come after me to save me, why would it ever be hard to serve God? No matter how difficult life is, no matter how challenging it comes. It's easy to serve God. Why? Because what I deserve, I don't get in Christ. I want to quote Carl Truman in his book on grace. Again, listen to what he says here. The Christian can no more talk of grace in cool, objective, or abstract terms than a husband can discuss his love for his wife in such a manner. Grace should hold us in its grip in such a way that our whole being is affected. That which brings us from being under the wrath of God to being his beloved children is surely something that we cannot contemplate in a dispassionate way. Do you believe that? I'm going to conclude here today. I'm going to ask you a question. Where do you make your stand today? Where do you place your hope today? In what we have or can do, or in what Christ has already done? Where do you take your stand? Romans 5 says this Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The grace of God and the merits of Christ on our behalf is the foundation of the assurance of our salvation. What did Martin Luther Luther lack? He lacked an assurance of salvation. He had no view of the assurance of salvation. And I'm here to tell you today that you can be sure that you're saved. If you have placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, and you have received that salvation by grace alone, Apart from your works, you're fully trusting yourself into his hands for justification. You can be assured that when you are his, he never lets you go. And you don't have to walk on the hamster wheel of your life of works righteousness. One day you feel like you're in a state of grace and the next day you're not. And you got to work your way back to that state. No. You can rest assured that the the price that was paid on the cross for your sins were paid for the sins you did commit and the sins you will commit. It's a once for all sacrifice. And you can rest in the fact that 
Christ that began a good work in you will complete it. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to work in you. He's going to mature you in the, the sins you used to love to do when you become a Christian. He works in you by your new nature to change your desires. He matures you and he grows you. You can have an assurance of salvation. It's not my merit. It's not my penance. It's not my faithful observance to the Eucharist. It's not what priests or saints have done for me. My assurance of salvation is in what Christ alone has done for me when he said it is finished. So where do we take our stand? Where am I going to take my stand today? I want you to stand. And we're going to take our stand as we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. That's how we're going to end today. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first. Chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love,
Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, it is the grace in which we stand. We make our stand on your grace, not on our efforts, not on our good works. We make our stand on the finished work of Christ on the cross, which is only a grace and a mercy. God, I pray for those here today that, that may not have made that stand yet. They've been standing on their own, their own effort. God, I pray that today that they would make their stand on Christ. God, I pray today that they would make Jesus the Lord of their life. They would place their faith in him. And I pray today for all of those that may be struggling, have been struggling with an assurance of salvation. Lord, I pray today that they leave free and assured that a work they could not accomplish is a work that you accomplished on their behalf. And because you do not fail at what you accomplish, they can leave today with an assurance that salvation is eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. See you next time.